And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, a day late, a buck short, it's the Coot Street Podcast with Jonathan Strand and very... Oh, I got that all the way around. I haven't done it for a while. Hi, Gary. I got that around the wrong way. Fine. You got through it fine. Everybody is expecting it. It's As we're recording this, it's uh, it's uh, you're, you're, you're frozen up. You're, are you there? Am I? No, I'm here. I'm here. Okay, okay, you're fine. Uh, as we're recording this, it's Australian Father's Day, which occurs to me as something that maybe there anyway. Happy Father's Day. You've got two wonderful daughters. They take care of you. I'm sure they fed you. You had breakfast. We're ready to record a podcast. And yes. then go father. Okay, so what's been going on since we last recorded? Well, we, we last you know, recorded some weeks ago. And basically, I've been just running around. I've been overwhelmed by day job stuff. Mm. I've sold one book since, I spoke, since we, we podcast, uh, which I should be doing more on right now. Mm-hmm. I've um, one book. I've got an agreement to publish another one, which I can't talk about just yet, but will soon. And I received the I received the author copies of the book of witches. I'm now holding that up uselessly, yes. so Gary can got copies. Mm-hmm. Many many boxes of them I got, which was surprising. So now I have to work out what to do with many many boxes. But I'm actually having fun. It's actually it's an interesting thing, and I, I don't know if you felt this. When you finally get a copy of a book, that's when it's real. Oh, absolutely. So like, so like getting this two days ago, he says, holding up the book again, mm-hmm. listeners, suddenly it felt like, oh, I did a book. And it's a but pretty you, book. You, you had the arcs months and months ago, I'm sure. But oh, arcs, yeah, I mean, arcs are not books. Arcs are not books. And also, you know, for those who, you're, who are out there doing uh, the collectible thing, they made mistakes with the arcs, right? And that's what partly it's okay with arcs. So if you pick up the arc of the Book of Witches, it says the Book of Dragons on the spine. I was going to point that out, which makes it collectible. That's the kind of thing that collectors love. It's it like is, the- it is. And the whole book's full of wonderful writers. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting work on the third book in the Book of series because it's possible the Book of is a, a series is a Book of series. Uh, and also thinking about ideas for further ones of those. Like, I have this thing. I think I'd like to do the Book of Voyages. Voyages? Yeah. I reckon it sounds like a really weak theme when you talk about it, but I reckon you do some amazing stories about uh, both fantasy and science fiction, because after all, isn't half of science fiction voyaging? Well, yes, but the word voyages itself is not a science fictional or fantasy term. When you say the Book of Dragons, you, okay, dragons, fantasy. You say the Book of Witches, Witches Fantasy. You say the Book of Voyages, I'm thinking of the Argo Knots. I'm thinking of Odysseus. I'm thinking of Sinbad. I'm thinking of I'm, I am thinking of Voyage of the Space Beagle and Voyage to Arcturus. I mean, absolutely. You need to have a modifier on the voyages. I know. I know. You're right. Um, and I mean, in terms of iconic, I mean, yes, I get stuck with iconic. In 2010, I edited with my wife, Marianne Jablon, Wings of Fire, a book mm-hmm. of dragon stories. And then in 2012, I edited Under My Hat, a book of witches stories. And then in 2020, I edited The Book of Dragons. And now in 2023, I've got The Book of Witches. So but I repeat. Okay, you've, given a, you've given a hint to a clever bibliographer, seeing that your pattern is this. You edit a YA anthology and then... Years later, edit an adult anthology on the same thing. You've done that twice now. You did it with witches and you did it with dragons. So obviously, the way to find out what your next book is going to be is to go back and look at a prior YA anthology, the Book of Carrots. I don't know. There's one out there somewhere. The Book of Carrots. <laughs> it's possible. I'm there for it. I'm, I'm there for it. Why not? You get a purple cat, carrots, orange carrots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and other than that, watch some television because just haven't been thinking a whole lot. And just been sort of getting through it, and, and not science fictional television, so ah. not relevant to the podcast, unfortunately. Oh, just, that's not true. I tell a lie. We did watch Marianne and I've been watching Star Trek: Strange New Worlds season two, which everybody else has already seen. Everyone has seen. I know. I've not even caught up with season one, so I, I enjoy I, it. At, at some point, I over. At some point, I've decided. And it may just be age. It may be having been with. I mean, I've been with Star Trek for. 55 years now or something like that. It may be that I just overdosed on franchises. Yeah, no, no, yeah. 
And I've barely read a word. I mean, I've read a couple of stories to acquire for a project, but that's about it. What mm -hmm. about you? My big reading project the last month uh, was, it, it, interestingly enough, was not a science fiction or fantasy novel either, but one which I am arguing in my review column ought to be of serious interest to science fiction and fantasy readers, and it's Nicola Griffith's sequel to Hild, much longer sequel to Hild. And to give you a sense of how much longer it is in terms of detail, Hild, basically uh, a fictionalized biography, fictionalized because there's almost no real information about her, of St. Hilda of, of, of Whippy. Um, from her from the time she's three until she's 18, her entire childhood. Uh, and this novel, which is, I'm going to say, 50% longer, covers the next four years of her life. So at this rate, I haven't actually done the math, nor have I checked with Nicola about this. But at this rate, it's going to be a 10,000-page novel because she lived into her 60s or something. No, I think she yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, and so Nicola's going to have to live to be about 112. Well, just just to finish it, unless maybe. there's a neat segue here somewhere for her to the end. There, there, there might be. Well, my point, my point is uh, that everything that uh, uh, science fiction readers, not everything, but a good many things that fantasy readers admire are uh, accomplished in terrific form in this novel. I don't like the term world building. I don't like the idea of world building. And I don't particularly like the idea of speculative historical fiction because historical fiction by nature has to be speculative. So, yes. so she's, she, she's using the details of a fantasy world without introducing any fantasy into it. And then there's a character of Hild herself who is a weirdly... It's going to sound weird to say this, but a weirdly early medieval version of Heinlein's competent person. Uh, she's smarter than everybody around. She observes things. She is essentially, she essentially was a proto-scientist in the first novel. Here, her skills get applied to politics. So you can begin to think, people think she has supernatural powers because of her skilled observation. She's a Bene Gesserit. Uh, she's basically somebody who simply knows more than other people around because she pays more attention. So we can read this and get all kinds of science fictional and fantasy uh, pleasures out of it, Fair but enough. mainly it's a really, really strong historical novel, which raises the issue that we've talked about before. What is the relationship between historical fiction and science fiction? Sure, sure, uh, sure. Know, I mean, Campbell's argument uh, to his writers that a science fiction story ought to look like historical fiction from the point of view of the world that it takes place in. Um, and I think that th there's always been a kind of uh, relationship there. And the relationship with fantasy is obvious because uh, without medieval Europe, that's an interesting question. Had there been no medieval and Renaissance Europe, what would fantasy even look like? Good question, but it maybe be something to do with what you see coming out of Middle Eastern and Arabic backgrounds. Who knows? I think that's true. I, and, 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 uh, and, and Chinese uh, and Japanese and Korean fiction. I will say as well that in amongst at the same time, while you've been reading that and some other things I know, I have mm -hmm. been paying attention to three books in differing capacities. I am actually reading A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand, mm -hmm. which is an October title. So I'm now, I guess, gloating that I have that and other people haven't. And I know you've already read the book mm -hmm. because I know you've reviewed it for us. Uh, and it will be part of a podcast we will do prior to the World Fantasy Convention with uh, Elizabeth Hand and uh, Alex E. Harrow about their haunted house, in, you, know, you know, novels. I've also been paying attention to Jared Shuren's The Big Book of Cyberpunk that's coming out this coming month, I think. I think it's a September title. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those sorts of books that, for my money, exists to be argued with, Right. Like, hopefully it will be enjoyable to read, and I'm sure it will be. But, you know, it's like when, whenever you lay down a set of defining, like, train tracks, that's what these books do, whether it was the, the big Hartwell books from the 2000s or whoever before that, mm -hmm. and Brian Aldous did it, uh, and now with, with what the books that the Vandermeers did and Jeff Vandermeer did through the 2010s and so, and now this book. What they actually do is they 
outline an argument you're going to have with the book, particularly mm-hmm. if you're a particular kind of reader slash nerd. And I'm certainly that one who, so like when I see an 1100 page big book of cyberpunk, I confess my knee jerk reaction is I'm a reader who goes, Oh no, you don't. You don't have a hundred pay hundred and five cyberpunk stories covering a hundred years. No. What have you done? So it's interesting to go on. It'll be interesting to go on and look and see what the book's actually like, but that's one of its pleasures. Well, I mean, it's one of the points, I think, of, of any anthology like that, as you say, is making an argument. David Hartwell's anthologies deliberately made arguments. The big Vandermeer books of fantasy and science fiction were explicitly making an argument that fantasy and science fiction history is not confined to the Anglo-American axis. Uh, yes. It's, 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 there are worldwide traditions that need to be recognized. And to some extent, the Vandermeers were trying to issue a corrective for all the big science fiction anthologies of the 40s and 50s that were all Americans, well, okay, all North American stories because you might have a Canadian in there. So so that's sure. an argument. The argument that, and, and one of the Hartwell anthologies was called the Hard SF Renaissance, and he was making arguments about Hard SF that I don't agree with at all until you start realizing that that misty kind of notion of Hard SF that he's using actually goes back to include proto-hard books that influenced hard SF writers, books that were aligned with hard SF, and books that were influenced by hard SF. So if you take cyberpunk, and people have argued about the actual nature of it since the 80s, at least, since it got its name, and if you go back and look at predecessors from Samuel Delaney to probably Court, you you can find all kinds of predecessors of things that, in retrospect, look kind of like cyberpunk. And then if you take the cultural expansion of the term cyberpunk, cyberpunk was a cover story in Time magazine in 19, I don't know, 90 or something at some point. And interestingly enough, I looked this up once for some essay I was writing. That cover story of cyberpunk in Time magazine doesn't even mention fiction. It's talking (laughs) about music. It's talking about programming. It's talking about uh, computer design. It's talking about, you know, this is a big new era of computers was just emerging. So if you look at that and say, okay, cyberpunk is everything that Neil Stevenson ever influenced, then you've got, you could even start including non-science fiction and fantasy stories, and you could start including techno thrillers as something like that. So if the argument is that cyberpunk is not just a movement in science fiction, but a big sort of cultural fog that has surrounded us for the last 50 years, then you could include lots of things in it. I wouldn't agree with you, but you could certainly do well, it. Sure. But I, I guess this is it. It's like you get to, <laughs> these books are not an answer to a question. They're the opening statement in a bar chat, yeah. bar conversation. Just nobody's willing to answer with a, with an 800-page anthology of their own and and a, a, a synopsis and back, for, back and forth, you know, uh, because you know, someone's going to come back and go, well, cyberpunk was over before it was done. Bruce Sterling said, well, so that was that, that was it on print. Then someone will say, well, we were out there living it and wearing it and all that kind of thing, much as they do, very much as they do with steampunk. I was going to say that exact thing. This is is the reason we get along on the podcast. Steampunk got its own cover uh, story in the New York Times uh, a few years after it became a thing. And, you know, after the original steampunk, the Blaylock and the, uh, Sterling and, and, and Gibson and that sort of thing. But the steampunk special issue of the New York Times was in the style and fashion section, not in the literary section, not in the art section. Steampunk was a way of life. And if you accept that, then you've got, okay, anybody who wears a funny top hat with compasses on it uh, is part of the steampunk movement. The other book I was looking at was the best of Michael Swanwick, a copy, mm-hmm. volume two, I should say. A copy came to me and I started looking through it and enjoying it. And uh-huh. I began thinking about that. I mean, the, the, the publication of that book, the, the near publication of the big book of cyberpunk and the, you know, the fact that I was reading uh, the Elizabeth Hand book made me start to think about recommended reading. I'd had a conversation uh-huh. with our, edit, our editor at Locus, um, Liza Tromby, and I was talking about timelines for working on that, mm-hmm. and that got me thinking about the kind of things you say in columns. Yeah, I glanced across a thing, and there's a 
this is something that you and I've touched on outside of the podcast, but there are these catchphrase observations that we use to just group things together because you know, you're trying to work out how do you give structure to something yeah, as sure. honestly unstructured as you hear in publishing. It's not a very meaningful thing. Every now and again, there are genuine trends in there, but quite often not. And then you break it down by category because we tend to do that. You right. know, I'm going to talk about the best novels, the best series, the best short fiction, the best anthologies, the best collections. And certainly for collection and anthology, regularly, I when I used to do it re regularly, I would fall into certain default statements like, it was a surprisingly good year for collections. Mm. And so I thought, okay, let's go to the best online resource never to win a Hugo. Internet, Internet Speculative Fiction Database. Let's use its advanced search and see how many collections does it list for the year now. Ah, okay. Even like it lists 300 or so. Whoa. And well, that's it. You go, whoa, how could there be three or 400 short story collections? There's a little bit of duplication and nonsense, but still, there's a lot. And then you're going, well, that's a lot. Then you're going, is that a surprising amount? And then you're going, every time for the last 10, 15 years, when I've written an introduction to a year's best collection, mm -hmm. I go, there were you know, at least 10,000 stories published. And you're going, hang on. So if every year there's an ocean of short fiction, of course there's going to be a pile of collections yeah. published. You know? And so why would it ever be surprising that, that we had a good year for short story collections? If you look back, every year for the last 20 years has pretty much been a good year for short story collections. This year already we've had strong debuts. I mean, you only mm -hmm. have to look at Muhammad or the Toby Ogundaran collections. Uh, major writers have had major retrospectives. Uh, you know, like, like old sort of emeritus age kind of writers uh -huh. like Peter Spiegel with a two-volume set from uh, Tachyon. Or, you know, someone like Kat Valenti or Michael Swanwick who have had oh. major you know, retrospectives. And there have been other new collections, whatever else come out. So there's a lot around. And they actually tie into different structural trends I was beginning to think that we never talk about. Okay, what are those? Okay. You see a lot of horror short story collections out there. Yeah. Well, I don't, but I know they're there. That, well, that's it, though. And you're going, okay. Well, everybody will also tell you short story collections don't sell very well. But hmm. horror short story collections tend to come from horror small presses. Horror yeah. small presses publish small press horror magazines that produce the stories that go into the horror short story collections. It, it's, it's like it's part of an economic cycle that sits there that goes, well, we can afford to publish short stories. Right. And there's an existing market for those short stories, so we can go for that market, which isn't going to be tens and tens of thousands of copies. It's going to be hundreds and hundreds of copies, right? So we can fit in that, and it's 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 a, a viable thing to do, and it's a, a reasonable risk for the author because they're not having to put a whole novel into it. A novel right. you want to get somewhere can sell thousands and thousands of copies uh, or more. So it becomes this thing where there's actually, as something goes, it becomes more commercially successful. I think short story collections begin to disappear. So like horror, which is on an upswing again right now, uh -huh. I think you'll. See there will be some fewer collections published as horror writers are segueing to writing novels to take advantage yeah. of the swing. Uh, similarly, you know, you, you don't get a lot of uh, fantasy short story collections right now, particularly, and science fiction is a whole other thing. But there's just this thing, it, it, it sits in there. So like right now, the trend of what's happening sits with where horror is in a cycle. And I know it's complicated to talk about those sort of things, but I think it's there. I and mean, I, I was trying to identify actual straight, well, no, no, not straight, that's the right way, core, core, core science fiction uh -huh. short story collections for 2023. And there's a small handful, but yeah. it's a very petite handful, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. That's what, what we, one of the arguments I'd make about, I think there are two things. One is when you start talking about the idea that short story collections don't sell, you make a very good point about small presses, about about the horror market. And the same thing is true to some extent with the science fiction and fantasy market. It's common, it's common knowledge, true or not, in the general fiction category that a mainstream 
large New York publisher is not going to publish a lot of short story collections. Yeah. It'll publish Stephen King's short story collections and that sort of thing. The one short story collection this year that came from a major publisher with major promotion was Kelly Link's. Um, and yep. Kelly Link had pretty much, you know, established herself in the general fiction category for, for years. Uh, and, and also she, but even Kelly is working on this, I guess she's finished this gigantic novel now. Um, You've touched on the, on the thing this week, Gary, mm-hmm. this is the week the arcs are going out. Ah, excellent. Now, now, now listeners, although we've touched on it for clarity, so we're not just talking behind the, you know, the scenes here, we're talking about Kelly Link's debut novel, the 600-plus page The Book of Love, the Book of is Love. now going to be sent out to reviewers and whatever in advance of its February 2024 publication. And I would suggest, suggest it's fair to say both of us are hoping to get one of those. Absolutely. And one but, of the things, but to, to get back to your point, that this is one of the things that Kelly has been living with for years and uh, other short story writers have been living with for years. I mean, everybody has asked, I've, I've talked to them about it. Everybody asks mm-hmm. Ted Chang, when is the big novel coming? Everybody asks Eileen Gunn, when is the big novel coming? Uh, people have been asking this for for 20 years from, from Kelly. Yep. There's still the sense that short stories are stepping stones to novels. Uh, and the idea of a short story career, uh, let's say a, a Ray Bradbury style career, uh, is, or, or a Harlan Ellison style career for that matter, is, or, or for that matter, a James Tiptree style career, because there's not, you know, a lot, most of Tiptree's reputation comes from the short stories. I don't know that people feel that they can sustain that kind of career anymore. I don't know. I don't know that there are the high paying markets anymore. There aren't yeah, many. that's kind of what I mean. It's, and even I'm, what high paying means has changed, you know? Well, what high paying means has changed. And the other kind of short story career, I mentioned Ellison, for example, we could mention Silverberg. You could make a living writing short stories if you sold 100,000 words a year of short stories at the cheap rates that the Digest was paying back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, those markets don't, well, you could probably sell 100,000 words of short stories all over the markets that exist now, online markets, but you wouldn't be making a lot of money from them. No, you would not. I mean, even, I mean, like, Tor plays well, and there are special one-shot things that pay quite well. Mm-hmm. But the average market, which even doing its best, I mean, the, 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 what you would think is of as the top markets normally, um, whether it be Asimov's Analog, FNSF, Clark's World, Lightspeed, all these places, they might pay 10, 12 cents a word, which is, which is good. They're doing well to pay that. But that's not living money. No, particularly since they can't take, no one wants to take 50 stories from one writer. And and you can't really do what Silverberg and Ellison did, which is to write under three or four different pseudonyms and sell multiple stories to the same magazine, same issue of the same magazine. Um, And it's, I think there's another distinction there. I'm not sure that people uh, view short stories as a learned craft in the way that people did during beginning in the pulp era and going through uh, the early days of Asimov's at least where people would write, there were reliable short fiction writers who would always produce good quality work. Robert Reed comes to mind, you know, solid career decades long, mostly short fiction. Um, and I have completely lost that train of thought, but I had a really good point at the end of it. I'll credit you at that point. Um, let me sort of circle back fractionally. How do you, how in the beginning at the beginning of the September do you feel about the the year in review? I mean, we're going to have to write up something in two or three months. Yeah, and it seems to me that I mean I would, I would expect it, but I would want there to be a good handful of debut novels and a book like Shakidi and the you know the brass. Mm-hmm. A, a Bolophon or Emily Tesh's book, uh, Some Desperate Glory, or whatever, they're around and they seem like really strong debuts. Yeah. And it seems like there's some strong slipstreamy science fiction books, like In Ascension by Mark and McInnes, Martin McInnes. Mm-hmm. And there are some interesting fantasy novels. Maybe I'm not immediately thinking of major science fiction novels other than maybe Translation, uh, Translation State by Anne Leckie. But there are, there's a handful of stuff around. It seems like a pretty 
pretty solid sort of a year. I, mean, I think it's a solid year. I think it's a year, you know, for the last three or four years, I think we've all been saying uh, diversification is great and it's it's more diversified year internationally uh, in terms of uh, BIPOC writers, in terms of LGBTQ writers, in terms of different voices, trans what All this is true. And but I don't think it's no longer as new as it seemed a few years ago. I think it's be, it's the fact that this diversification is now becoming more and more the norm in, in science fiction, at least, or at least not as uh, revolutionary as it seemed. And as much as science fiction is supposed to be revolutionary, when something new happens, and by something new I'm referring to a few years ago when we got all of the anthologies from Korea, China, Japan, uh, South Asia, uh, uh, Israel, and uh, very notably, of course, Africa, uh, with the Africa Risen Anthology and with uh, Ogena Chovy's previous uh, African best years. So, 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 so the fact that it's no longer news to have an international anthology or a group of international novelists, I think it's probably good news. Are oh, there good moves? I mean, uh, are they done? Are they trendsetter complete? No. No, no, not at all. But I mean, I, I'm willing to suspect that had people been aware of this back in looking at the year's best science fiction from the 50s and 60s, uh, in the 60s, especially when you started seeing a lot more women writers showing up, they'd been there all along, but suddenly they were becoming more visible. That seemed revolutionary until it didn't. Um, I guess so. I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to say that I think that, first of all, this inclusion thing, as, as we tend to talk about it, which is a terrible way of talking about it, um, this this lower, this gaining of lots of additional perspectives is mature yet. I don't think it is. I think we're still, and we probably will constantly be pushing to lower barriers to um, oh, yeah. diversify the range of perspective that we're getting, the range of voices where people are coming from. Um, I think... The particularly since what we tend to talk about when we talk about this is the integration of non North American, non mainstream voices with North American mainstream science fiction publishing. That's what we actually tend to be talking That's about. It's probably true. Um, but that also recognizes uh, a reality that comes around every award season. The for books to get nominated and for awards for them to get um, on year's best lists, for them to get in year's best anthologies, they have to be visible to readers and, and editors. And one of the things that uh, that you learn by looking at these international anthologies is that, yes, there's there are longstanding traditions of science fiction and fantasy and maybe some very different kinds of science fiction and fantasy uh, coming out of diverse cultures, but if they aren't seen by readers who are voting on awards or by editors who are putting together year's best anthologies, they remain invisible. They're no longer as invisible as they once were. But we always have to say to North American readers. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because I mean, the story of science fiction that tends to get told, the Gernsback Continuum, is a, a North American story. Yes. There are reasons for it. Right, there are good reasons in terms of where commercial market exists, da da da. da. But it, it, it's that North American story. Uh, so it's like this. This is where, like, you would hope, and I think it's there that you look at a book like the Big Book of Cyberpunk, that it goes beyond the North American story. Even though, frankly, Cyberpunk is very much a North American yes thing. Um, and yeah, you know, you'd hope that when we look at sort of what's happening in the field, you know, like say this year when we talk about quite unquote diversification, a thing that I would like actually like to stop talking about. Because I think we're going to start looking at these things as voices that already belong in what we're doing. We need to talk about it at the next level of conversation. Rather than going, I'm not saying you are saying this, by the way, but uh -huh. rather than saying, yeah, we've got a writer from Lagos, a writer from Bangladesh, four writers from India, uh, three writers from Mexico, one from Brazil, and 500 from New York. Mm -hmm. It's what are they writing about? So when a writer like Vajra uh, Chandrasekhera writes The State of, of Bright Doors, which is his debut novel for mm -hmm. the year, um, how does that look uh, when, when read against, the, you know, say, Tim Powers has a new book out, yeah. uh, My Brother's Keeper, which is a particular kind of fantasy novel, and what kind of themes are they picking up? Yeah, I mean, you look at Shigidi, which we were talking about a, a couple of right. weeks ago, 
uh, Wale Talabi, right? I mean, that is a book that is both of his background and absolutely mainstream uh, speculative fiction. That book is just in the same stream as the Ben Aronovich books and the right. Jim Butcher books and whatever else, as well as being its own thing completely and from its own background and everything. And so it's interesting to, like to begin to talk about it more interestingly. And also, as I've been sort of touching on for a long time, to talk about how all this comes back, and this is maybe what I'm thinking about, how it comes back to the idea of a cohesive genre. Because, you know, a lot, there are a lot of voices we're hearing about. Now, we're in the view of position of crit critics and reviewers and commentators, and our listeners, our brave listeners who are listening to me talk too quickly, mm. uh, brave listeners are keeping track as well. But for a lot of people, that they don't. So they're just what they see in their bookstore. So it's like trying to get that perspective set aside. I mean, I, I would, the challenge I'd put out to anyone writing a, a sum, year summary this year is mm -hmm. don't tell me that it was another good year for, set that aside. Don't talk about diversification uh -huh. or new perspectives as being a new thing trend. Because first of all, they're not, mm -hmm. right? It goes back 10, 15 years, and some of it goes back further, and some of it you know, has had a recent flush that's, flush of success that's, that's continuing. But we're on the next thing. So what are those voices talking? It's not that those voices are talking. It's what are they saying, and how's that beginning to influence everything else? That's what we need to be looking for. Yeah, we've seen climate come in and become mm -hmm. the standard background for, for most science fiction almost these days. Uh, so what's happening now? What are we talking about? What does the rise of books like A Haunting on the Hill and like Starling House, mm -hmm. the terror novel, and Rose House, the Arcadia Martin novel, what do they, uh, novella, what do these, these stories that are about homes and places being possessed and difficult say about how we're thinking about the world right now you know is it a reflection some of it will be is it a reflection of the pandemic and finding that we've been closed in at home and what do we mm. feel about that environment or is it something else about a sense of security in the world and are we seeing is anxiety about the world a predominant theme that's coming into fiction at the moment or coming to the fore at the moment in science fiction and fantasy and horror. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. It strikes me as being quite a rational response to the world. I mean, one of, well, yeah, one of the issues that is... Go ahead and finish your thought. That was almost my whole... Oh, well... It's like, it, no, no, it wasn't a great one, was it? It's kind of like... It's like... If, if we're anxious about the world, how does that influence the kind of stories? Because there are two responses to it, if you think about it, Gary. One is you engage with the anxiety... Yeah. Right. That can give you horror. That can give you Ballardian type science fiction and post apocalyptic science fiction. It can also give you cozy fiction. The rejection of anxiety. The the oh, Becky yeah. Chambers, Travis Baldry kind of thing. So anxiety about the world maybe is actually the big predominant theme in fiction right now. I don't know. There are different kinds of anxieties, and I, I agree with your general argument, which if I can paraphrase it or possibly completely misrepresent it, you're saying that maybe we should start asking ourselves not who is writing, who is entering the field, but what are they saying? Or what are they writing about? What are they concerned with? And that means that you are going to have issues, let's say in African fiction, uh, that are social anxieties that those of us living in the United States or, or possibly in Perth aren't experiencing. On the other hand, there are kinds of universal topics, and maybe these are literary rather than science fictional things. You mentioned uh, Starling House, for example, Alex Harrow's novel. It's a very good haunted house story, but what struck me about it in the first opening chapters is that it's a novel about the fear of abject poverty, the fear of simply not being able to sustain your, uh, your life and protect your younger brother in, in that case. Um, it's it's a strikingly grim story, which in which the haunted house becomes. I'm not, we'll talk about this when we get oh, yeah. Alex on. So I don't want to spend a lot of time about it. Uh, I think that there's a sense um, when you talk about uh, uh, novel, Lavi Titter's not his latest novel, The Circumference of the World, but Neon. He's talking about what will what will predatory city development look like in the future. Um, and he's talking about a kind of urbanization 
that yeah. uh, at the same time he's talking about his favorite themes of classic science fiction and so forth and so on. But there are concerns that are more likely to show up in year's best reviews of general fiction. Are we worried about climate change? Yes, that's all over general fiction now. Science fiction has been dealing with it for decades. Um, I'm not sure it's a good thing that we assume that science fiction knows about climate change because arguably the most important climate change novel maybe ever, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, The Ministry of the Future, is th- th- there's, there's a kind of sense of, well, we've taken care of that issue, so we'll just use it as background now. Uh, and I think yeah. complacency is one danger. Science fiction already knows about uh, climate change. It already knows about... Uh, Increasingly, I'm beginning to see concerns about censorship, especially in the states here, governmental control over personal decisions, which is a big issue in the United States. Um, The um, Toby Bacall novel is actually a concern that what Bradbury was worried about in Fahrenheit 451 is not only back with us, but maybe – go ahead. Is that a stranger in the citadel? A yeah, stranger, stranger in the citadel. Yeah. Well, no, in case we're wondering what the Toby Bacall oh, novel yes, is. Right. Oh. Well, I mean, it, it's essentially a far future sequel to Fahrenheit 451. And I remember thinking that's a really interesting idea because Fahrenheit 451 seemed to me to be a classic example of science fiction expressing the general anxiety of its age. That is, McCarthyism, uh, HUAC, censorship, book burning, the kinds of things that Bradbury was legitimately worried about in 1953. Um, And for that matter, the stuff that we saw in 1984 and Brave New the 30s and 40s dystopias, we kind of thought we'd outgrown those, and now they're back. So so those those things are showing up in science fiction and fantasy as well. Um, Book burning is, or, or, or book eating, or book banning, or... Uh, that sort of thing, seemed not to have been an issue in science fiction for years, and now it is again. Well, yeah, and I, I do think it's this thing. It's, it's it's the thing that says something like Becky Chambers' uh, uh, Psalm for the Wild Bill mm-hmm. is the other side, the other balance to something like that Toby Buckhold book yeah. or to some other book, you know, or ministry for the future or those kind of concerns and that's what's happening in the field right now and when you look through the year's best books i think you'll see that's what you see our best writers trying to come to terms with so you know in fairness to, to literature as a whole this is remotely new i don't know maybe it's just what's what's motivating it is new um i i think that i it, it's difficult to say it's uh, one of the things that has worried me a little bit about science fiction over the last few years, um, until you look at somebody like Stan Robinson, I realize pe- that's also a very long novel. There are long passages in it in which the narrative does not move forward at all. There are a lot of people who have difficulty reading that sort of thing. But I think it's even more hazardous to, pr- to just assume that uh, the, the global catastrophe will be the background of your future fiction. In other yeah. words, uh, that, that becomes fatalistic. That becomes a kind of, okay, the world is going, you know, the Florida archipelago was showing up in Stephen Baxter novels 20 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's the, the idea that the coasts of uh, the United States will be inundated, that low-lying countries like the Maldives will disappear. If that becomes just an assumption, aren't we kind of, abandoning some responsibility to make some kind of clarion call that this is not an issue that you can just assume is going to happen? This is because we go on about it and it's probably what would make probably Ministry for the Future is the book which Cood Street has responded to most in the past handful of years. Its strength is that it, and much as I think actually uh, it's a strength of Aurora as well, it, it is a book that howls against something terrible happening without giving you the easy out of going, well, at least we've dealt with that and thought about it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, the and yet they're both weirdly optimistic novels. Well, I, well, I, well, partly because I think, well, Stan certainly would tell you because you have to be. Yeah. Uh, that's your obligation to be um, optimistic. And also because what's the value of being anything else? It's just kind of going, you have to do things. And even now, even when they write articles about climate collapse, 
they write them from the perspective of scientists say there's still a chance we can do something. We just have to do a lot now. And then we don't because, well, we can still do something now. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that science fiction needs to be uh, ripped from the headlines, as they used to say. Uh, I've been uh, more than once uh, a little disappointed that books that I thought would have lasting effect, uh, or careers that should have had lasting effect, haven't actually done that. I mean, an, another name of a major writer who is probably ought to be talked about in the same general discussion as, as, as Kim Stanley Robinson is Paolo Bacigalupi. Not only the calorie man, not only the economics behind those novels, but the water knife, which was going to be a breakout, terrific bestseller that dealt with the water wars in the Southwest, is a novel which is happening right now. There was an article in today's New York Times about the aquifers and 90% of the farming land in Kansas are disappearing. Um, and, and, and that's, I mean, he wasn't talking about Kansas, he was talking about Arizona and Texas and this sort of thing. But by and large, it's, it's a thriller novel that was attempting to mainstream eyes a science fiction theme. I thought it was very successful. I th I, it may have done very well for all I know, um, but it's, it's, it's a passionate novel and that kind of passion, it strikes me is something that, uh, that science fiction has always had. It's, it, it may have been yes. even in the most dystopian kind of science fiction and, or, or dystopian literature in, in general, by which I mean, let's say 1984 and Brave New World and The Handmaid's Tale are general fiction versions of dystopia uh, as opposed to classic science fiction versions of them. Those novels are all written out of the notion that it's not, well, classic novel title from the Victorian era was a Charles, I think a Charles Kingsley novel called It Is Never Too Late to Mend. That's the subtext of all those early dystopias. We can avoid this. If we, you know, if we just pay attention to what we're doing, we don't have to live in this world. And I worry that science fiction begins to assume that, yeah, we will live in that world. And even fantasy worlds that I'm seeing are increasingly kind of grim, you know, maybe on the edge of medievalism, maybe on the authoritarian worlds. I guess the question I'm asking is science fiction, is it political enough these days or is it um, preoccupied with quote unquote world building that is so convincing that we don't really worry about how, what we did wrong to get to that world? I don't know. I think you're seeing more interesting attempts at answers to these questions on the peripheries of the field and where it blurs into mainstream. I think, um, I think that the structure of genre, the way that stories are traditionally structured within it leads to sort of stopping analyzing problems and going for comforting, comfortable solutions or because stories have to finish a particular way. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and, and I'm not arguing that there shouldn't be uh, space opera stories. No, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't expect that alternate, uh, distant futures that um, I don't know that Elliot de Bodard Zuya universe. Uh, sh it's it's an interesting experiment in imagination, uh, and she's playing with a lot of genres. She's playing with a lot of aspects of science fiction and fantasy and adventure story and wuxia and so forth and so on. So I don't expect something like that to be addressing issues uh, that are on the ground issues here. I mean, science fiction has room for completely far future. It has room for things like uh, the, I, I, I don't know, Adrian, uh, I mean, what am I thinking of? The, uh, well, in, in, any kind of, let's say Book of the New Sun since going back to the 80s. If you set something far enough in the future, make it complete enough, it's a literary world of its own. It doesn't have to have that kind of uh, cautionary tale aspect to it. All I'm saying is that the cautionary tale may be getting lost. I mean, we're not, we don't have nuclear war novels anymore. We, have, we don't have too many climate disaster novels because the climate disaster is always in the past. Um, what do we have? What, what, what is science fiction? Let me ask you this, because there's the, the Cood Street, we ask questions we never answer. Um, does the far future story, the one that leaps conveniently 
500, 1,000, 1,500 years into the future? Does it become an abstracted pole do? Does it become so sealed off from reality that it doesn't really mean a whole lot, as entertaining as it may be? I think, well, I, I wouldn't say that it doesn't mean a whole lot because you could say the same thing about uh, historical fiction. In other words, it can talk about processes that are ongoing, the far future. Uh, essentially, the, the Toby Buckle novel I talked about is a far future novel. Uh, and on the one hand, you can make an argument by setting a book banning society in the far future, you're removing it too much from our own danger of book banning. But on the other hand, uh, you're portraying a culture which is insulated, which uh, the power structures that hold it together, the uh, kind of political, legal organization of those societies can very much uh, reflect what our own society is. I'm thinking of The Wall, uh, the by, okay, now I'm blanking on the author of the uh, the two-volume. The two uh, oh, Gautam Bhatia, was it? Bhatia, no. yes, Gautam Bhatia. Um, yeah, th that's a very far future kind. It's it's a, it's an isolated uh, community that you know builds its legal and political and judicial systems all within a kind of uh, structure which we can recognize. When it's 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 not necessarily presented as an outgrowth of anything in the world now. It's presented as a reflection of that world. So the far future can certainly reflect our world and reflect our anxieties. Uh, it can deal with issues like racism and, uh, and, and, and sexism and intolerance and censorship and totalitarianism. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily point out that, well, this is how we got from here to there. Uh, yeah. you have, uh, look at, look at so, uh, international, inter interplanetary society. If you look at uh, the society on, uh, of, of, of Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, um, there are problems with that society. I mean, to some extent, that novel is meant to be a mirror on our own society because of our attitudes toward gender, which are subverted by the novel. But if you look at the power structures behind the government in that novel, it's also a meant, meant to be a reflection of us. And that's a, that's a world, the Hainish novels in general, if there's a connection to our own history at all, it's tenuous at best. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's fair. So we're sitting six weeks from the World hmm. Fantasy Convention. Yes. What's your, what's your your run up to that? In terms of reading, or in terms of buying? Yeah, well, like, is it just getting some columns done and getting ready to go? You've got I'm hoping. No, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not going to have as much to do there as you will as a guest of honor, um, and I certainly want That's to. Not what I have to do. Well. I'm waiting to find out. I, I need to start making my, my social plans. Mm. Well, I expect, I mean, this is, uh, we were there a few years ago to go to the Worldcon. Uh, so it's yeah. not as though Kansas City is unfamiliar territory to us. Um, what, I, what I am thinking will be interesting would be going to a world fantasy virtually days after we learn what actually happened at Worldcon. And I'm extremely curious about what's going to happen at Worldcon. I'm not going to it. I do have some good friends who are going to be there. Uh, we will we will hear the results of the Hugo Awards, what, five days before we all leave for Kansas City or something, which is an unusual experience. Yes. yes. I mean, I don't think it's been said publicly yet, but I think, you know, there's going to be some changes at Locus to accommodate the fact that, you know, you're going to be covering the Hugos and the World Fantasy Awards at exactly the same moment, right? Kind of thing. They'll all be in the same issue and paying attention to that, which is an interesting term from our perspective. And getting all while we're sort of getting ready for and talking about the future conventions that we have to get through. I mean, for me, I'm kickstarting these two anthologies, the new book. Oh, wow. Excellent. Got to get those going. Uh, I've got to find out what the convention would like me to do and do some prep for that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, I'll maybe have an event or two about the Book of Witches at the convention. Um, I'm also I've got one, I've only got one book out next year, Gary. It's been a long time since that's true, hmm. and so I'm prepping new adventures in space opera for Tachyon, and that'll come out second half of next year. 
and the mystery anthology, the book of question mark, as you put it on your Facebook page, which we will. No, no. Uh, you should be running a contest. You should be the, the person who guesses guesses it right gets a free autographed copy of the book <laughs> that comes out or something. The book of books. No, 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 no. There has to be literally the book of. We should actually be talking a little bit about the book of dragons because. The diversity we were talking about earlier is much reflected. The book of witches. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because, but so so we have to think of something else along those lines. But I think the the book of witches, just as an aside, is an interesting response from me as a reader, because a lot of the writers who are included here, possibly who appear as examples of diversity in the genre feel more like just people I've been reading and become really enthusiastic about and so really wanted to work with. You know, I did not include P.J. Lee Clark because it was diverse to do so. Mm. I did because P.J. Lee Clark's work is interesting and enormous fun and I really like it and wanted to read more of it. That's the same reason for Premi Muhammad or, F or Fonda Lee or Usman M M Malik, you know, uh, these or any one of the others, th these writers are not there because they represent anything other than great. They're terrific, and I've been reading more of them. And so it's it, it is in a sense a symptom, a symptom, a whatever. An no, outpouring. It, 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 it is evidence of what I was saying earlier. That, 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 <clears throat> that, 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 that this is it's, it's no longer uh, unusual. These are writers who, as you say, you've been reading. We've been seeing a lot of stories by them. And speaking of short story collections, we should mention the Usman's. Story collection last, which won this year's Crawford Award, uh, is, an ex is, is a terrific writer. You, somebody who you you know think of as a horror writer and turns out, well, no, there's a lot of fantasy and that sort of thing. What you're saying is that no longer are stories being used to represent diversity, but the authors of those stories are no longer anything other than main uh, within the mainstream of science fiction and fantasy. They're part of the community now. Uh, it's true. I, I, it's think, true. I think that's generally true, and I think it's true. Of it's, it's fascinating to watch who becomes a member of the community as opposed to uh, a, a, an occasional one-off uh, yeah. writer who, who just has a, a unique voice. And it doesn't take many stories to realize who that is. This gets back to a question of why we have story collections. Um Mm. You you introduced me to Saad Hussein, who is one of my favorite writers. I'll read anything that he comes up with. Um, and at the first time, I thought, I to to use a colonialist, a horrible colonialist term, that first story I read by him seemed exotic. It seemed like nothing I'd read before. I didn't know anything about Bangladesh to speak of. I didn't know anything about Bangladesh. I knew stuff that you know in general knowledge but not about literature and culture and i didn't expect it to be nearly that funny um yeah so it's it's no longer you you no longer read a saad hussein story because you're going to see parts of south asia you haven't seen because of, you know it'll be a good story with an odd with a setting you may may not be familiar with and i think that's what you're saying about both of these anthologies um which, which yeah. is good news yeah. I, I i realize that and it's the same thing the question about the third anthology which yeah. I assume is the one you showed a, a bit of a contract on your Facebook page. Um, have you started soliciting stories for it yet? I've started soliciting stories for it, yes. So some people out there know what it is. Yes. We could, yes. We could corner some them. Some have said and, yes to me and some have said no already. <laughs> All right, but nevertheless, that means there are any number of people because we know what your pattern is. I can I can go back and look at your anthologies and figure out who you're going to invite. There are going to be people I don't know about because you invite. You always like to invite people that that we don't expect you to invite. But I know you're, and those are the people that we can take down a dark corridor in Kansas City if they're there, and find out the answer to the title of this book if it's not been announced by then. You already know what it is. Do I? Did you tell me? Yeah, I don't think you told me. I'm not going to tell you now. What did you tell me? I don't think you told me. I don't even know if I'm allowed to. I mean, I'm allowed to say that we're. No, I understand you're not allowed to say it. It's just, it's just that there's a clear pattern going on here, which could go on. But the fascinating thing is when you look at icons, and I, 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I one time thought about writing a book on the iconography of fantasy because I'd written one about science fiction. And classic icons are dragons and witches um, and yep. not a lot of other things, really. I mean, uh, chimeras of various kinds, perhaps. Uh, uh, sea serpents are kind of a subset of dragons, so you can't really do that. Fairies, or- elves, uh, you know, orcs. De- devils. There are only so many things that you can do in a series. Of you, might, you, you might rather look to the kind of things that Gardner and um, Jack were doing. So you're talking about magic swords, that magic kind of stuff. Swords, but you they also... icon- iconic kind of thoughts, but yeah, it'll come around. Yeah. Oh, well, we've waffled. Oh, I, I should say that there is one sort of in terms of we talk about collections and year in review between now and the end of the year. Lily used debut collection. Lily used debut collection is coming out. Um, and that's announced a book to look forward to. I mean, at some point, we, we should touch on books we are looking forward to because really it seems the true purpose of this podcast is to, well, is twofold. One, for us to enjoy talking to each other, and two, for our listeners to end up having to go buy books. Right, and I'll mention the book that I'm reading now, which I think is out next month, which is uh, the new collection from Christopher, Bar- Christopher Barzak, Monstrous Alterations. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually, when I start thinking about year in review, that might be a kind of trend that's going on with short story. These are stories that are alterations, in his term, of earlier stories, you know, fairy tales of Edgar Allan Poe stories and that sort of thing. And the idea of revisiting earlier texts, uh, whether they're fairy tales or not, has, has propped up a lot this year. I mean, Kelly, Kelly Link's collection of stories, they're all her versions or her reinventions of classic fairy tales. Jane Yolen had another collection like that this year. Uh, some some of the stories in Kids Johnson's The Privilege of a Happy Ending relate back to uh, the riverbank, which in turn relates back to the wind and the willows. Um, there are variations of fairy tales and the, the Dead Man and other stories, a collection of Gene Wolfe's horror stories coming out. So maybe the idea of revisiting texts is is kind of a thing these days. I mean, even um, even the Elizabeth Hand novel we talked about isn't really a sequel to The Haunting of Hill House. It's a different novel. It takes place in the same house. There are allusions to the Shirley Jackson novel. But still, there is this sense that uh, the, the fantasy, at least, and, and maybe horror is interested in revisiting and reinventing its own past. But could I claim that that's new this year, or is that something that's been going on for years? I don't know. I don't know. Tell you what I do know. It's September, and we have given these good people less than half of their podcasts, Gary. They're probably grateful. Um, I I hadn't thought about that. No, it's... it's... Oh, that's a whole new thought. No, no, honestly, I I, I hadn't considered them maybe actually quite quite happy to. Um, Hmm. Maybe we won't catch up. I think we'll catch up. I think the question is, we, we have a few things planned for later in the year. Um, yes, I think so. Yes. And, 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 and part of this has been uh, uh, complications of schedules for both of us on both ends. Last last weekend, we were supposed to record, and for various reasons, didn't. Um, but I think also that there's this balance, and this is one of the things I'd like to hear from listeners. There's a balance between two, you and I rambling, which is exactly what we've done tonight, which we've been doing for 13 years and getting away with uh, I don't know why. And and yet, when we were talking with Ola Talabi a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, this is somebody who's delightful to talk to. I want to talk to, I want to meet more writers this way. Um, I want to meet people who are old friends like Liz and, and, and Alex who have been on the podcast before. Uh, but I also want to spend some time uh, discovering new writers that we've never talked to before. As well, I have to say, I'm, mm-hmm. as, well as, as, as well as some uh, some old friends who have major books coming out. I mean, you mentioned Cat Valente, for example. Two volumes, two gigantic volumes of short fiction, which is virtually a whole career. Has a new novel out before Christmas. Somebody has to stop her before it's too late. 
<laughs> Honestly, dude, you can't stop Cat Valenti. If no, you can't. You can't. Levi- no, no, no. You can't stop Cat Valenti if you're going to let Levi Tintar keep doing what he's doing. Right, <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, no, very few people are more prolific than Levi, and I say that respectfully. And happily, he said he... I think I saw on social media he may be knuckling down to write the third book of the uh, the Britain Quartet. Really? Yeah. Which is good. That makes me happy. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, we're, we're, we're and we'll talk to Lavia again at some point in the future, I'm sure. So, yes. so yeah, we have lots. Of, we have lots of plans, but at the, the, as, as we enter the the, the I was going to say the fall <sighs> semester. Good grief! My academic world is coming back to haunt me. As we enter the meteorological fall, which means September, October, and November, we'd like to hear from 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 our listeners as to what they uh, want—more guests or more rambling or both. Yes, here in the twilight of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, for now, then, until until possibly next week, we'll see if we can do it next week. Well, until we end this, okay. Let's just let's just end this now. Until next week, or until we record again, until we put out another podcast. This has been the Code Street Podcast. You poor bastards. <laughs>